title of the sermon is called, How Can We Trust the Bible? And we're going to look at that from the writer himself, Luke. So before we do, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so good to be in the presence of the living God today, to hear the voice of God through the word of God, and to be with the people of God surrounding all that you, God, are doing. And even as we gather here in this little corner of the world, we're mindful of many churches all over the world, all over Santa Barbara, all over the United States, all over the globe, some hiding uh, as they're as they're worshiping you for fear of persecution, we gather together on the Lord's day doing what Christians all over the planet are doing, some in secret and some public, recalibrating and redirecting our minds and our hearts to the living and resurrected Son of God. As we do that today, Lord, as we look at what it means to apprentice you for the years to come, may you call us as you would the early disciples saying to us, specifically to our hearts in Santa Barbara, as you did thousands of years ago and as you still do, may you call us to follow you. We pray these things and ask for them in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, <clears throat> I really love reading, uh, and not just books about the Bible, but all, all sorts of different uh, books, uh, novels, classic uh, literature, classic novels. I just love reading. I don't know how this came about. I didn't always like reading. I think I actually got through most of my schooling having never finished a book in my life. Uh, and it was around the time that I got uh, converted uh, to love God, what uh, Christians commonly refer to as being born again. You know, my heart changed and I started loving Jesus for the first time in my life about 10 years ago. That uh, coinciding with that, I don't know if it was connected or what, but at the very same time, just developed this insatiable appetite for books. And so I began diving into the Bible. I began diving into books about the Bible. I began diving into books that had nothing to do with the Bible. I just loved reading. And one of the things that I also started to love reading was just uh, novels and stories. And one of the things, because there's so much out there to read, and I I can't be troubled to read garbage anymore. I want to save my uh, uh, reading span for the good stuff. And so usually I'll do a lot of investigative work when I pick up a new book. I'll read the back, I'll read the cover, um, I'll read the table of contents, and I'll read the first chapter. And for me, it's just a subjective personal thing for me, but if, if I am not riveted by the first chapter, I will not finish that book. I want to be wooed by the first chapter. That author has work to do, man. You need to woo me because there's a lot of good stuff out there for me to read. I do not want to read trash. There's a lot of trash out there. I want to read the good stuff. And so that's usually how I'll do it. If I can't make it through the first chapter, uh, I probably won't read the rest of the book. Uh, I want to be deeply engaged. Uh, Now, I've found over the years that that's a general thing for me with books uh, books in general. But the really good stuff doesn't just woo me in the first chapter. They get me in the first sentence. In fact, some of the masterpieces of literature, some of the classics that have been written, are famous for having some of the greatest opening lines in history. 
I just want to read you a few examples from classic literature. Uh, uh, just the first line of these books. And I want to see if you can guess uh, who wrote it or what they're about. And here's the first one. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan, you see? Now, some of you might not have ever read that book in your life. Technically, it's Peter and Wendy, but it's, it's that, that same story, Peter Pan. You might have never read that in your life, but you hear that line, and you're like, oh, yes. A kid, uh, it's simple, it sets the pace for this kid whose main characteristic is to be a Toys R Us kid the rest of his life, right? You know the story. Here's another one. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Kind of gave that one away, right? (laughs) Incredible line. First of all, it starts with in a hole in the ground. Right there, you're just like, okay, I'm interested. And then it ends with a word that has not existed prior to that sentence. What is a hobbit? I don't know, but I want to read more. This is Tolkien in pure, uh, just pure Tolkien form. He does what he does best. He doesn't just grab you by the first sentence. He actually, in that first sentence, sets the pace for everything to come. He's bringing you into a a, a world of his own imagination. He does it in a matter of 10 words. This is why he was so great. Here's another one, a little bit longer. It was the best of times. It was the... I have to keep reading. You got it right. But it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. You got it right. Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, Not only is that such a classic line, so good, this tension between two different worlds, but he's also paving the way for what his book is going to be about. Uh, And what is it about? It's about love and family during the French Revolution and the reign of terror. The best of times, the worst of times. Okay, here's a a longer opening line. This one uh, some of you may not know, but it's good. It starts this way. I'm an invisible man. No, I'm not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie extoplasms. I'm a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids. And I might even be said to possess a mind. I'm invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I've been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, They see only my surroundings, themselves or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Any guesses? The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Person of color riding in New York City during the 1950s, describing how people stereotyped him and saw right through him, an invisible man. Get everything in that first paragraph. Okay, last one. Arguably, one of the most well-constructed opening lines of a novel in history. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. And not only is that line just so well-crafted, 
but it does something to you. Some of you are offended because you just heard it. You're like, I'm a rich man. I don't need a wife. And some of you are women. You're like, I don't need a rich man. I'm independent. I'm a businesswoman. This novel, although it seems like it's celebrating some of those things, is masterful in its irony and sarcasm, the whole book. If you've read it, you know this. Cheekily pointing out and censuring some of the expectations of 19th century English society. It's smart aleck. It's sarcastic. It's making fun of some of the social norms of the day. And it does it all in that first line. I bring up all of these opening lines because Luke, the gospel writer, is one of the best writers in the entire Bible. He is not only one of the best writers in the Bible, but he is uh, taking on one of the big, biggest project, projects in the Bible, writing about the life story of Jesus. And he starts with a masterpiece of an introduction. In the same way as we've seen before, he not only wants to capture people's attention, but he also wants to give you a glimpse into what's to come. I'm going to read it right now. And as I read it, you'll see that he's painting a picture for the whole account in what is actually a single sentence. Here's what Luke chapter 1, Bible's open, verse 1 through 4 says. Luke says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We'll stop right there. <clears throat> In this opening line of the Gospel of Luke, Luke doesn't just want to grab your attention. He wants to give you a glimpse into the things to come. In his line, we're just going to look at three things. It'll be fairly short, but he, he talks about three things here. Uh, he'll bring up the trustworthiness of the Bible that we have today. Secondly, he'll talk about the uniqueness of his own gospel, why we should care about Luke. And third, he'll talk about, and we'll learn about, the purpose of Luke's gospel for our lives today. Here's what, I, here's what I mean about the trustworthiness of the gospel. Look at verse one. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have already been accomplished. He's speaking about the story of Jesus, about the gospel, about all of these events. In other words, this is not a novel thing. Luke didn't just make this up, nor is he start, he's not, a, he's not, a, a, he's not storming uh, new frontiers here. He's actually admitting other people have already written on this, namely Mark, the gospel writer. I'm not doing anything new. I'm just writing a unique account to add to those other good accounts. And he brings up something that changed my life when I was in college. He refers to this in verse two. Uh, look at verse two with me. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, who also delivered them to us. He brings up eyewitnesses. You know why this is so important for me about 10 years ago? is because I came to the faith in my college years. 
I came to my faith, started going to the church, started figuring all of this stuff out. I didn't know anything about the faith other than Jesus is real and I like this guy. I haven't got it all figured out. I've got a lot of doubts. I've got a lot of anxieties. I've got a lot of struggles. Uh, but one thing I, I'm pretty certain of, Jesus is real and I, I want to learn more about that guy. Now as I was going to school, uh, in, in one of those years particularly, a New York Times best-selling author wrote a book. It was called The Da Vinci Code. And The Da Vinci Code took all of my classmates by storm. Here's what I, this is my introduction to The Da Vinci Code when it came out uh, in, in book form. I was sitting, I was, at the time, I was a supervisor over a studio with, uh, that saw a lot of students uh, downtown. And one of, the, one of the students that was working with me, uh, kicked up his legs on the desk, and he was one of the smart aleck type. Uh, he knew about my faith, and he was always putting it to the test. And he looked at me, and he, he crosses his arms, and he says, hey, have you read the Da Vinci Code, Lazo? And I said, no, what is this Da, this da Code? What is, what's the Da Vinci Code? He's all, well, it's a novel that came out. It's good. Uh, but you shouldn't read it, because it'll shake the pillars of your faith. And he had a little sneer on his face. <clears throat> and so I read it, you know, so I read the book, watched a movie, read a bunch of books like it. Uh, and at the, at the base of all of these books, the, the claims are never different, you know, even to this day. And you can expect them to come out right before Easter and right before Christmas, Newsweek, History Channel, Discovery Channel, PBS, whatever. Uh, something about how the faith that we believe as Christians is not true or not reliable. Uh, and I began to examine those things because it was important to me. I had just come to the faith. I felt like there was this calling on my life to pursue this, this kingdom work. And so if, this, if these uh, uh, accusations were true, I'm going to waste my life on something that isn't true. So I needed to be dead sure about this stuff. And so I began years-long journey into this, examining all of these accusations and all of the evidence and all of the claims. And one of the things that I discovered, and I, I could spend hours talking about this, I won't, because I, I don't have hours to talk about it this morning. You can talk about me, uh, this in person with me if you like. I would love to talk to you for hours. <clears throat> but I came to the realization uh, that a lot of those skeptic articles that get put out leave out a lot of the stuff that we desperately need to know. That what we're holding in our hands can be traced back to the eyewitnesses of Jesus' birth, death, life, and resurrection in such a way that we can hold this thing with certainty and believe not that it was, a, it was not a wives' tale, it was not a crazy ancient game of telephone that just took off and went viral in the first century. These were uh, uh, events that were historical, recorded, seen by hundreds of witnesses, and compiled by trustworthy sources who had eyewitnesses, uh, eyewitness accounts. To the effect that when you hold up the Gospel of Luke, you can say, this goes all the way back to Jesus. I am reading an account that has been commissioned by Jesus himself. This material sourced from eyewitnesses. Luke brings that up. He says, this isn't even the first one. There's a few more just like it. I'm just adding to it. Why? We see the uniqueness of Luke's gospel. In verse three, he says, it seemed good to me also. Now, why would Luke, 
uh, go on to write another gospel when we already had Mark. Uh, we already have uh, uh, John and Matthew and other letters like it. Why would Luke see fitting to write another gospel? Well, he gives us a little hint into why. He refers to the person that he's writing to, Theophilus, good old Theo, in verse 3. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, investigating, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know a lot about Theo. We know a few things. Uh, uh, We know that he was likely a person, and that's about it. A person that was connected to Luke in some way. Some people wonder, is he just a metaphor for just uh, an audience that, that Luke is writing to. His name literally means friends of God. So is Luke just writing to any, you know, all of his readers uh, using this as a metaphor for friends of God? Don't think that was it entirely. This seems to be a historical person. Some of the things that we know, we can be sh- pretty sure about Theo though, and this is where it connects to your life and my life as well, is that uh, Luke is writing to Theophilus whether it's an audience or whether it's this historical person, to convince him, look at verse four, to have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. In other words, this is a person who's not, he's not, uh, he's not, he's not quite mature in his faith, but he's not, neither is he a full-on skeptic or atheist as well. He's probably a person that really is curious and loves Jesus. He's exploring the faith. He wants to move deeper into his faith. He's uh, examining the things that Christians believe. But there's another part of this Theophilus that's got him on the fence in his faith, whatever that might be. Maybe it's that this is uh, originally a Jewish faith, a Jewish community, and all of these Jewish Christians are finding themselves being persecuted. Maybe for Theophilus, he's like, I don't know if I want I love Jesus, but I don't know if I want to sacrifice my freedoms for this. I don't know if I want to die for my faith just yet. Oh, this, this Christian community, they do weird stuff. This bread and wine thing that they do, and like the body of Christ, like, ugh, weird. Like, I don't know if I want to do that. This is a weird group of people right now. And so it seems that Luke is writing to a person who's right on the line. He's on the fence in his faith with Jesus Christ. And Luke is writing to that guy. And so Luke is writing this meticulous account. You compare it to Mark, so much detail. So many stories that we don't get anywhere else. It is fashioned in such a way as to prove Luke's point, which we'll get to at the end. And it's sourced from all of these eyewitnesses. In fact, so much material did Luke, this historian, have that he actually went on to write the book of Acts. Did you know that? We can think of the book of Acts as Luke 2, right? It is the sequel to the gospel of Luke. Uh, And the purpose of Luke's gospel is very simple. I just read that line. I want to write this so that you and people like you Wherever you are in your spirituality, whether you are a Christian, you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you've hit a wall in your spirituality. Or maybe you don't even know if you're a Christian. Maybe you just come, like every now and then, you just started coming to church, you wouldn't really describe yourself as a Christian. Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle. It doesn't matter. 
Luke is writing this not just to Theophilus, but to you and me. To bolster or to cultivate or to fan into flame our certainty concerning the things about Jesus that we have been taught. He is driving this home. It's so that we can know the meaning of Jesus, what this means for our life. In other words, Luke is writing to fan into flame any spark that might be there in your heart right now. Luke is saying, is there even a modem of curiosity about Jesus in your heart right now? I want to burst that thing into flame. Let me tell you everything I have ever heard from eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Let's just spend a little time with Jesus. Let's watch how he prayed. Let's watch how he sat at the feet of his father. Let's watch how he dealt with uh, the privileged and the powerful and the politicians of his time. Let's see how he dealt with the marginalized and the poor of society. Let's see what he valued. Let's see what he taught. Let's see how he lived. Let's see what he did. Let's see how he died and let's see how he rose again and let's see how he interacted with his disciples. And by the end of that, I am convinced that your little spark will blow into a flame that will light the countryside on fire. That's the purpose of Luke. For all who wish to embark on that journey. And so we're going to see things like that. We're going to see Luke explaining the life of Jesus. Not as some ethereal thing somewhere in the the sky that doesn't touch down into our lives. But we're going to see all of those things that we just mentioned. We're going to see him dealing with social concerns. We're going to see him dealing with political powers. We're going to see him dealing with power and privilege. We're going to see him dealing with the marginalized. So in his day, that would have easily been the poor, women, and race. Not a lot has changed, has it? We're going to see what Jesus has to say about those things. We're going to see him eating a lot. It's been said about the Gospel of Luke that you could eat your way through Luke. And I highly encourage you to do that. (laughs) One writer said that in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus is either pictured uh, in any instance that mentions Jesus, he's either on the way to a meal, coming away from a meal, or in the middle of eating a meal. Luke is the food gospel. Now it's not, yay. (laughs) We should all bring sandwiches every Sunday. Now it's not just there, because food, uh, food is pleasurable and fills a felt need. But in that day, it was a statement, just like everything else that Jesus is doing. To eat with certain people was a public statement about a lot of things. So for Jesus to eat with the people that he ate with was a loud statement about what the kingdom of God is like. So we're going to look at the pleasures of eating food and drinking drink but we're gonna see what Jesus meant by them and how they teach us about the kingdom of God. Salvation is a real life situation. It touches everything that we do. It's not something in the sweet by and by that we'll go to later, although that is certainly included. It's something that changes the way that we live right now. Luke wants to teach us about that truth. And broadly, it is all under the umbrella of what it means to apprentice Jesus. If you're tired of a weekend Christianity where you simply go to church, uh, you learn a couple things, and then you live a life that is largely disconnected from your faith, I think this is a good book for you because it's going to tell you 
what it means to follow Jesus every second of the day. It's an opportunity at large for those who love Christ to follow him and to pledge their allegiance to him and to do everything that he taught them to do. In the Gospel of Luke, we are going to see what the reality of Jesus means for the present. But it's going to It's, of course, going to comfort us at times, because Jesus does that. For those of you with broken hearts, you're going to learn about the prodigal son. For those of you who have been neglected and abandoned, for those of you who feel shame, you're going to see the heart of the Heavenly Father, who does not ignore you, and who sees you and is intimately acquainted with your ways. For those of you who feel marginalized and feel like you have nothing to offer and like the world is against you, you're gonna see that God is for you. In all the parables that Jesus teaches, in all of the ways that Jesus taught people just like you as he was walking from town to town, it's gonna to be incredibly comforting and encouraging for people who wanna follow Jesus but it's also gonna be very challenging at times. There are gonna be times where those of us who have a lot will be challenged by Jesus to use what we have for the kingdom of God. There are gonna be times where those of us who have a log in our eyes will be challenged by Jesus to stop picking on the speck in other people's eyes. There will be times where our uh, allegiance to all of our uh, uh, ideologies and all of our idols in life will be challenged by the king of the universe. There will be times, and nobody is going to be exempt from this unless you're perfect, you will be challenged by Jesus. He will poke at certain things in your life, those golden calves in your life. And I just want to end today by asking, are you ready for that? Theophilus was a person who seemed to be ready. Doesn't mean he had all the answers. Doesn't even mean he knew what was coming. He was on the fence. And I believe that what Luke is doing is writing to get people from the fence onto the pathway of apprenticeship to Jesus. Now, the question all of us have to ask is, are we ready for that? And is that really what we want? Because maybe what we actually want is a comfortable place to show up. A faith that can supplement the life that we already live, the biases that we already have, the idols that we've already furnished in our, the apartment of our hearts. Maybe Jesus is just a nice thing to add. And for you, Jesus is going to confront that because he demands it all. And later on in Luke, he'll tell a little story and he'll end by saying something like this. He'll say, <clears throat> if, you are a, uh, if you oversee a military battalion, in a words, uh, similar words, uh, you don't just throw people into the mix without thinking through how you're going to win that situation. And then he goes on to say, likewise, all of you who follow me should count the cost before you do it. 
I love this because Luke, the gospel writer, isn't writing to emotionally manipulate me. He's not just trying to like grab the heartstrings of your heart and pull you in and fool you. He's saying, here's what it is. I'm going to write to you about the life of Jesus and what Jesus expects of his disciples and apprentices. And it's going to be hard at times. But for those who are willing to follow Jesus, it's going to be the best life you've ever dreamed of living. With challenges, with persecution, with toil, with effort, with difficulty. You might lose some friends. You might lose a job promotion. You might lose your social clout. You might lose your comfort. You might even lose your money. But you will gain eternity. And you will gain Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and I'm kind of skipping ahead, but we won't get there for like two years, so you'll forget it by the time we get there. (laughs) Jesus says, hey, I'm not trying to fool you. This is what it is. And I'm going to spell it out for you, the Jesus life. And every one of you was made for the Jesus life. But it's a marathon. A marathon that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can do. And when you cross that finish line in glory, you will look back at your life and say, I lived the best life. It was all worth it to follow Jesus. It was all worth it to follow this Jesus. But right now, Jesus is saying, I want you to count the cost. Because it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, and I'm going to challenge you. Are you ready to commit your allegiance to me? That is what we're going to go through in the Gospel of Luke. Here's what it looks like to follow and apprentice yourself to Jesus Christ. And at the heart of that question is uh, really the basis of Christianity. What do you make of Jesus? Not do you admire him? Do you think he's a good teacher or a good prophet or someone to add to your already existing repertoire of uh, wisdom and wise quotes on your Pinterest boards? But are you willing to change everything to conform it to the way that Jesus says it's supposed to be? And make no mistake, he does not claim to be another teacher. He claims to be the son of the living God. If you believe that, the question all of us should be asking right now, who this day are we going to serve? That's a quote of Jesus. Who today are you going to decide to serve? Heavenly Father, come before you uh, this morning again and ask you, God, that you would work in our hearts today to see and to understand and to sense and even to feel the reality of Jesus Christ. I know we haven't gone through the Gospel of Luke yet together, although some of us have read through it. Uh, We're just on the cusp. We're just on the cliff looking over. And yet as we do, God, I just pray that you would just begin the work that you have done in followers of Jesus for centuries before us. 
work in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to say yes to you. Work in the deepest part of who we are, unclogging the confusion and the lies of the devil and the clouds and the gray areas to get to the questions that really matter. Who is this Jesus and what am I going to do about him? And I just pray for everyone in this room, including myself, that we would leave absolutely uncomfortable until we have answered that question decisively. I pray that in your love and in your mercy, you would not allow anybody to leave this building indifferent to who you are. But you have to do that. We cannot control the human heart. We can't even control our heart. But you are the master physician. You created our hearts and you know how to work on them. And so I pray that you would begin to work in our hearts today to see you a little more clearly than before, to be a little more curious about you before, to be a little more reckless and risky about following you than before. And I pray that you would appear alluring and attractive and glorious and wonderful in all of your ways. And may we as a church be marked by discipleship, by apprenticing, by stepping onto a pathway hand in hand with our God walking with you wherever you choose to go. We pray this in Jesus' name.